Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the 13th chapter of the book of Judges. Early in the Revolutionary War, Washington sent one of his officers throughout the countryside to requisition horses. And one of his officers called at the uh, at a stately uh, mansion and uh, was received by the mistress of the house. Madam, he said, I've come to claim your horses in the name of the government. Uh, on whose authority? She uh, demanded. He said, on the authority of General George Washington, the commander-in-chief of the American forces. She said, well, you go back and tell General George Washington that his mother said he can't have them. All of which uh, goes to show, I suppose, that uh, no authority is quite as compelling as, as a mother's authority. Some mothers, however, have no sense of authority. They've been demeaned, uh, displaced by their husbands, uh, ignored by their children, made to feel as though they have little or no influence in their homes. Uh, if that's true of you this morning, I hope to bring you some encouragement from, of all places, the book of Judges, Judges chapter 13. Uh, there is an authority which inheres in every believer. It's the authority of obedience, and it's this that this uh, chapter deals with. Uh, our word judge, the title of this, uh, this book, is really not... Uh, it's not accurate. The uh, Hebrew term for judge uh, doesn't uh, doesn't speak of, uh, of of a judicial figure, but rather of a champion, heroes, swashbuckling defenders of the rights of the oppressed, the downtrodden. These judges were uh, men and, and women who cared for uh, for the underdog. God raised them up at various times throughout this period of Israel's history to deliver Israel from various uh, oppressors. So this is a book about heroes. And this chapter describes the birth of the last of the Israelite heroes, uh, the man we know as, uh, as Samson. But really, chapter 13 is about an unheralded, uncelebrated mother. Uh, she's not named anywhere in this chapter, but uh, she really is the heroine of, of the story as far as I'm, I'm concerned. She is a woman who is a person of, of great strength and dignity, and we can learn uh, from her this morning. Uh, the tale begins, as it often does in the book of Judges, with the story of, of Israel's sin. Verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Uh, time and again, throughout this period, Israel began to serve other gods. So God gave them over to the gods they served and to the people who served those gods. And in this case, it was the sea people, the Philistines, these powerful uh, folks who settled in, in the Levant, the uh, Mediterranean, along the Mediterranean coast, and who dominated Israel for uh, 40 years. Uh, it was at this period that God raised up Samson, uh, Israel's Hercules, 
this man of great strength and power, and as the text puts it, he began to deliver Israel from uh, from oppression. Let me begin reading uh, verse 2. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you're sterile and childless. Uh, sounds redundant when you read it, but uh, indicates that God really does know and care about these things. It's a heartache to him when people uh, when people's hearts ache. And uh, he gave her a promise. You're going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. First person mentioned in this account is Samson's father, Manoah, and uh, his uh, hometown, city of Zorah, which was actually a displaced camp. It was a camp for displaced persons. The main body of the Danites had migrated north under pressure from the Philistines, and Manoah and his family were, uh, were left behind. The unnamed member of this family is his, his wife. Her Identity, like that of the identity of so many women, was submerged under the identity of her husband. She's uncelebrated, unheralded. Uh, we know very little about her except uh, just these few verses that are given to us here in, in chapter 13. Yet she is by far the more interesting character. Uh, Manoah comes off as a lazy, spiritually indifferent, fusty old fuddy-duddy. Uh, she appears in the chapter as a woman of immense strength and uh, dignity. Her marriage may have been difficult, but uh, there was a factor in her family far more difficult. She was childless, sterile, as the scripture puts it, incapable of having children. Uh, that was a very serious thing in this culture because having children was part of the good life that uh, people presumed God gave. So there was a matter of social stigma as well as her own uh, personal shame. A lot of sorrow in this home. She must have prayed often for a child. She was sterile. Like uh, Rachel, Hannah, and others before her. God heard. He knows about these things. He cares. We matter to him. And uh, he appeared one day to this uh, unnamed woman. And he promised that... Uh, she would have a child. The angel said that certain conditions would obtain. The first is that the child would be a Nazarite from birth. Now, that's not a denomination. We're not talking about Nazarenes here. A Nazarite was, uh, was one who took a vow of denial, self-denial, abstinence from alcoholic drink. As a matter of fact, uh, they abstained from all the fruit of the vine, grape juice, as well as, uh, as uh, beer and strong uh, drink and wine. They also uh, uh, abstained from anything unclean, eating anything unclean, and they let their hair grow long as a sign of this vow. These were vows that were taken off and on by godly Israelites. Uh, they were symbolic, really, of the of what God intended for all of Israel. Not that they take the vows so much, that uh, but the, that they be a people who sought with all their heart and all their strength after God. These, these Nazarites 
were the hard core of faith in Israel. Or to put it another way, they were the soft soil in which the word found root and grew. And they were intended to be emblematic of God's intentions for the whole nation to be a, a holy people. And uh, Samson was to be a uh, Nazarite from birth. That's unusual because normally these vows were taken later in life and then for just a short period. Paul himself took a Nazarite vow at, at one point in his, uh, in his ministry. The second thing it said is that this man would begin to deliver, her son, this man, would begin to deliver Israel from from the Philistines. And the and ties the two elements together, his Nazarite vow and his ability to deliver. So his freedom, his liberty, is is based upon his piety. To the the extent to which he centered on God would be the extent to which he he would bring uh, salvation to, uh, to Israel. The third element in the story, which is most interesting, and for purposes of our story most significant, was that Mrs. Manoah herself, I don't know what else to call her because she's unnamed, uh, 13 times in the book, it, in this chapter, just refers to Manoah and his wife. So I'll just call her Mrs. Manoah. Uh, she herself is to be a Nazarite. Uh, men, women as well as men, took these vows. Another indication that even in this uh, strong uh, patriarchal society with its male bias, women are not considered by God to be subsets of men. They can have immediate, in the sense of unmediated, relationship with God. They are not disciplettes. They can be full-fledged, mature, grown-up disciples. And uh, Mrs. Manoah uh, was called to uh, be a Nazarite. Um, the woman then went to her husband and told him what had happened. Verse 6, the man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. She did not yet know who this was. The angel of the Lord is the Lord himself, uh, a pre-incarnate manifestation of of God in, in flesh, an appearance of God. And uh, she, but she saw him simply as a man of God, a prophet. <coughs> Excuse me, but nonetheless a very awesome prophet. I didn't ask him where he came from. She said, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, "You will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean." She's simply reporting to Manoah what the angel had said to her, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. Then Manoah himself prayed to the Lord. A modicum of faith here in this man. O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. Interesting prayer. Teach us how to bring up the boy. Literally, teach us how to bring up this boy. It's a good prayer for parents of all of all ages. Most of us start our uh, parenting uh, feeling very inept. We're much too young to raise children when we first uh, have them. And uh, we scurry about looking for help, asking for advice, reading good books, inquiring wherever we can, trying to pick up whatever information will enable us to be uh, better parents. We struggle through the whole process like the man who had three theories of child raising and then had three children and no theories. And, uh, uh, and then, then it's over. About the time we begin to get the hang of it, our children are grown and gone. 
And we get to practice on our grandchildren, but it's a little too late then. They're just to play with, not to correct. Um, and, it, and it's a good thing, see, to seek advice of others, get all the help that we can. But ultimately, the, the best help we can get comes from our Father who is in heaven. That's, that's why this prayer is so significant. Teach us how to raise this unique individual that you've given to us. Teach us how to bring up the boy. Uh, Ruth Bell Graham's prayer poem reflects that awareness. It's on the cover of your, uh, of your bulletin. Listen, Lord, a mother's praying low and quiet. Listen, please. Listen what her tears are saying. See her heart upon her knees. Lift the load from her bowed shoulders till she sees and understands. You who hold the worlds together, hold her problems in your hands. God knows. He cares. Matters to him about your mothering. And uh, he's the wisest, best father of all. And that should constantly be our prayer. Lord, teach me how to raise this child. Uh, God heard Manoah, the text tells us, and the angel of God came again to the woman. Remember his request, teach us how to raise this child. The angel of the Lord responds to that request. Appears again to the woman while she was out in the field. It's an interesting phrase. The Hebrew suggests that this was her daily duty. She was out there hoeing cotton or whatever. And uh, this lazy old fellow was probably uh, sitting in the gate uh, bragging about his accomplishments because when the angel, when she appears to him, or when she goes back to him after the angel appears to her, it says he arose, which suggests that he was uh, sitting out the day's activities. Uh, she went to her husband and uh, told him, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, are you the one who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? It's a very interesting question. It's basically the same question that he asked before. The word rule is the Hebrew word mishpat that means right. And what he, she, he is actually asking is this question. What is the right thing for me to do so that this, this boy will accomplish everything that you intend for him to accomplish? She, he's linking together his destiny with the parenting Process. Tell me the right thing to do so I can guarantee that this boy will be everything that you've called him uh, to be. In answer to Manoah's question, the messenger politely suggested he already told Mrs. Manoah everything that he needed to know. He, he does not directly answer his question. He simply refers to what he has already told Mrs. Manoah. Your wife must do all I've told you. Uh, told her she must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine nor drink any wine or other fermented drink nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I've commanded her. He goes back to the initial word to Mrs. Manoah that she's to be a, a woman who pursues after God with all of her heart and all of her soul and all of her mind and, and all of her strength. Links together the well-being of this boy with her uh, walk with God. Manoah's question is, how can I raise this child to be a godly man and realize all his potential? In effect, the angel answers, that's not your business. That's my business. See? Your business is to walk with me. See, Manoah's question had to do with the product. What can I do to guarantee the product? The angel refocuses the question. 
The product is not the issue. The issue is the process. So the question is not, how can I raise godly children? The question is, how can I be a godly parent? Sounds like the same question, but it's not. It's not at all. One has to do with the end product. The other has to do with the long-term process. So the message is delivered, and the the angel turns to uh, depart, and Manoah begs him to remain. Perhaps he wanted more information. He offers uh, to feed the angel. Uh, whom we now recognize as the angel of the Lord, God himself in pre-incarnate form. The angel says, no meal, but there is to be a sacrifice. And I'm not going to take time to read the section. I'll let you do that this afternoon. But a sacrifice is, is offered, a burnt offering. The angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. What's the point of this? Well, simply this. You and I are forgiven for our parental failures before we even begin. No failure is final. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That includes our failures as parents. We grieve over the past, we grieve over the present, we have a a sort of unfocused dread and anxiety about the future. Can I really pull it off? And the Lord, in effect, says, that's my problem, that's yours. I've taken the blame for your failure. Don't don't, don't take that blame upon yourself. It's paid for. All parental failure is paid for, past, present, and future. What a wonderful freedom that is, how it frees us from guilt. All of us look back to the past and see how we could have done better. There are no perfect parents. We failed our children many times, but we're forgiven. And we're free from the dread and anxiety of the future. We live in that forgiven state. That's grace. And I think that sacrifice, that burnt offering, that blood sacrifice, symbolizes that ongoing gift of God's good favor in in the face of of our sin. And then the angel was taken up to heaven in the smoke. Of the, of the flame, of the sacrifice, which I, I believe would indicate to, uh, to us that the sacrifice was, uh, was accepted, but it, it frightened Manoah. He says, uh, we're doomed to die. We have seen God. It's a silly pagan notion that anyone who gets too close to God is extinguished. You know, that's a pagan idea. And, uh, Mrs. Manoah, who is by far the more Mature person patiently answers, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things now or told us this. When God accepts the blame for our our sin, he does not then destroy us. Uh, Matthew Henry in his uh, quaint way, Matthew Henry is a 17th century uh, expositor and He puts these words in Mrs. Manoah's mouth. Nay, said she, we need not fear God's wrath. Let us never turn that against us which is really for us. God's not on your back. He's on your team. And uh, it's his desire to grant not only forgiveness for the past, but grace and provision for the future. Now, you know as well as I what happened to Samson. He was anything but a... a, uh, uh, 
uh, I'll put it the other way. He was a very difficult child to raise. And uh, he had a very difficult time of it all all through life. Uh, Samson was an interesting person. Harassed the Philistines. Uh, kind of a prankster. Uh, as I said, he's very much like the classical Hercules with all of his strength and, and power. And yet he, he prostituted his strength on bad company and, and alcohol and bad women. And, and uh, his whole life went down the drain. And, and Mrs. Manoa watched his decline. Uh, heartbroken. heartbroken. Uh, unable to stop his... His rapid disintegration. Chapter 14 tells how he went down to Timnah, which is a little Philistine town just to the west of uh, Zorah. Saw a young lady there and uh, says, I want her. I want her. Goes back to his family and says, get her for me. And they said, well, now wait a minute. You know, this, this is a breach of family, of clan etiquette. It's a, it's a breach of, of God's law. This is in defiance of everything that you know. Is, no, he says, get her. I want her for me. And apparently they resisted him to the end, but he went anyway down to, to Timnah to secure this uh, this woman as, as his wife. An interesting thing happens on the way. A young lion attacks him. And this is not an accident of history. I believe this was a message from God to warn him that his youthful passion would destroy him in the end. His lust was like the lion. And uh, we're told that uh, the Spirit of God came upon him and he tore the lion in half, which is an indication that God would by his grace and by his power, deliver Samson from his, uh, his uncontrolled uh, passion, if he so, uh, so chose. But uh, Samson uh, turned his back on the Lord, continued on his profligate way, and as you know, he ended up in Gath. Just a shambling wreck of a, of a man, listings gouged out his eyes, putting him to work, grinding corn. Cecil B. DeMille's was about 500 years off when he had Samson pushing a mule-drawn uh, mill. Uh, actually, what Samson was doing was grinding corn with a mortar and pestle. It's women's work back in, the, in that day. That's the, that's the humiliation of it. Here is this great, strong man in the women's court grinding corn. They wanted to humiliate and embarrass Israel's hero. Of course, they did so remarkably well. And then in the end, as you know, he pulled his world down around his own ears. That was Samson's end. The forgotten factor in all of this, forgotten figure, is his mother. Who saw all of this begin to happen. Who saw her, saw her boy trapped in his lust and eventually destroy his life and not realize the great potential that God had, uh, had put in him. And I'm sure she asked herself, as we often ask ourselves in those dark uh, hours of the night when we cannot sleep, uh, perhaps many of us uh, have experienced those nights when we walked the floor and wept over our children and asked, where did I go wrong? What, what did I do? Where did I fail them? Where did I let them down? And I can picture Mrs. Manoa, Mrs. Manoa shouldering so much of the guilt and blame for Samson's uh, failure? That's a good question. Who's to blame? Who's to blame? When our children make unwise choices, when they abuse alcohol, when they do drugs, when they become promiscuous, when they drop out of school, when they 
are engaged in criminal activities, when they turn their backs on the family and on God, we inevitably ask ourselves in one way or another, who, who's to blame? Where did, where did we go wrong? And usually we conclude that all of the blame rests with us. And we uh, relentlessly rehearse our failure as parents. Whose fault is it? That's the question when our children go wrong. Well, good parenting does make a difference. Uh, good parenting in general produces good children, just as bad ch- parenting in general produces uh, bad children. But the equation is not exact. It's not absolute. Because life is not that simple. See? We like these cause and effect relationships. I do this, I get this result. But our world's not that neat. We don't really live in a cause and effect universe. There are other factors that at work. One is nature. Nurture is not the only influence on a child. There's a great deal of evidence now that, that some children are, are genetically loaded toward uh, learning difficulties, uh, ADHD, uh, deficit, uh, attention deficit of various types that cause them to struggle and, and have a very difficult time in, in school and and in the world, as C.S. Lewis said, some people come into life driving a, a hard machine. There's uh, a great deal of evidence today that, that uh, genes not only carry certain physical characteristics like eye color and hair color and size, physical size and shape, but also predispositions toward alcoholism and depression and various other, other illnesses. There's some, there's some things that children come into the world for which we are not responsible and over which we have no control. This is a simple fact. And so nurture is not the only factor at work in our, in our children. And finally, and perhaps more importantly, every child is an individual. They have the right to choose. And with the best of parenting, they may still choose to walk away from God, to walk away from us, to deny everything that, that they've been taught. So it's a simple fact. Even God will not uh, tamper with our wills. He lets us choose. Now, we all know families where uh, children have been uh, abused in various ways. Alcohol is abused in the family. There's violence in the family. Very difficult places for a child to live, and yet the children turn out remarkably well. Uh, they do well in school. They get responsible jobs and hold them. Uh, they uh, do, do better in their marriages than their parents did. They do a better job of raising their... We, we say, why? What's going on here? There are other cases where uh, homes are warm and loving and disciplined and caring. And children are instructed in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and yet in those families, one or more children are struggling and have, having a difficult time. See, well, it's because there are factors that are built into us over which we simply have no control. Uh, Ruth Bell Graham has a, has a poem in her book for prodigals and those who love them. It always touches me when I read it. It's talking about uh, parents who are, are judged by other parents. You know, I have to honestly say that through the first years of my parenting, I thought I was a super parent. And it was hard for me to understand how others could have difficulty with their children. But uh, uh, over the years, I learned better. I understood. 
And I remember reading this poem one night, and it, it touched me deeply. It still does. Uh, they, speaking of parents who have difficult children, they felt good eyes upon them and shrank within undone. Good parents have good children, and they a wandering one. The good folk never meant to act smug or condemn, but having prodigals just wasn't done with them. Remind them gently, Lord, how you have trouble with your children, too. Do you realize that God had a parental failure? That Adam and Eve, with the best of parenting, turned their back on God. It happens. It happens. I want to make is this, if, if we as parents are dedicated to producing godly children, we will probably break our hearts because it cannot be done. But if we as parents are dedicated to being godly parents, then that's a goal that's doable, you see. Now the question, the, the statements seem to be similar, but they're not. One has to do with the product, the other has to do with the process. If we think that X number of techniques, X number of methods will produce this result, we're probably headed for disappointment. It might work, but then again, it might not. Life is just not that simple. Joaquin uh, Endahar, <coughs> the uh, pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, said you could sum up baseball in, in one word. You never know. Now, his word count was off, but... Uh, what he said about baseball is true of life. You just never know. There's only one guarantee in life, and that's God. Everything else is up for grabs. And if we don't believe that, we're likely to be headed toward grievous heartache. See? The only thing we can do as parents is aim at being godly parents. Doing everything we can to do the job that God has called called us to do, and then leave the product up to him, leave the consequences uh, with him. Okay. Our focus must not be on results but on process. Our questions then become how can I cultivate and nurture my relationship with God <clears throat> with God? How can I grow in grace and in the knowledge of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? How can I deal with my personal weaknesses as a parent? My impatience, my temper, my rage, my selfishness, my intolerance, my resentment, my doubt, my defensiveness, my pride, my laziness, my unwillingness to listen and try to understand. How can I strengthen my marriage? That's a very important question because a stable marriage speaks eloquently to children, How can I develop my parenting skills, reading, inquiring, thinking, praying, asking, learning everything we can about being good parents? How can I develop my communication skills? See, these are the questions we ought to be asking, not how can I produce good children, but how can I be a good person? How can I be everything that, that God wants me to be? And then, and then we must leave the process to God. Someone has written, Lord, in this frenzied puttering about the house, the dusting, straightening, mut muttering, are but poor efforts of a heavy heart to help time pass. And while I clean, please, if tears fall, 
They're settling the dust, that's all. Lord, I'll straighten all I can, and you take over what we mothers cannot do. The only thing you and I can do is center ourselves on God and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and grow as godly parents. We cannot guarantee the results. That's up to God. Um, you know, we let me say a word to, to children here. Uh, we live in an age of victimization. That's the, that's the buzzword today. We're all victims of our dysfunctional families. I'm still trying to find a functional family myself. <laughs> One of the funniest Farside car- cartoons I ever saw showed a conference for functional families. There's one guy sitting out there in the audience. You know. I had a very good family, but it was dysfunctional in, very, in, very, in a lot of ways. I'm a dysfunctional father. Uh, don't look so pious. You are too. And, uh, and we're living in an age where everybody blames their families. Everybody blames someone else for their wrongdoing. We have to understand that we as children choose. No one made us make the decisions that we made in, in the past. Uh, came across an old poem some years ago. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed. To find out why I killed the cat and blacked my wifey's eyes. He laid me on a comfy couch to see what he could find. And this is what he dredged up out of my unconscious mind. When I was one, my mummy locked my dolly in the trunk. And so it follows naturally that I'm always drunk. When I was two, I was ambivalent toward my younger brothers. And that's the reason why to date I've poisoned all my lovers. And I'm so glad since I have learned the lessons I've been taught that everything I do that's wrong with me is all my family's fault. No, children choose. They choose. There's some things over which we have absolutely no choice, no, no uh, power, no authority. And that's over the choices that, that others make. As C.S. Lewis put it, there's only one awkward person in the world that we can, that we can do very much about. And that's ourselves. Now, uh, let me summarize what I'm saying this morning in terms of, of three statements. One is that regardless of the failure of the past, present, or future, we walk in a forgiven state. We must not accept the blame. It has been taken off of our shoulders by our Lord himself. He has taken the blame. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. We must not shoulder that responsibility. We are forgiven. The second thing I would want to say is that our focus as parents is not to produce good children. It is to be good parents. It's all the difference in the world. To focus on godliness, to learn, to grow, to become more mature in our parenting, and then to leave the consequences to God. And then finally, I would like to leave you with one reminder that there is always hope. It's never too late. Remember Samson? Uh, Samson uh, prostituted his strength for many, many years, but uh, it seems that in his early 30s, shortly before his death, he came to himself. Remember his final prayer. Lord, strengthen me this one more time. He came back. He remembered his, his, the faith of his, of his mother. And while there are no guarantees, again, the only guarantee is God himself. There's always that hope. We should remember 
that the proverb, Proverb 22.6, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, is not a promise. That's not a promise. That's a premise. It's a general observation about life. It's like our uh, proverb, as the twig is bent, so the tree is inclined, in general. But we all know exceptions to the rule. The Proverbs are not intended to be absolute promises. They're general statements. They're axioms about life. But they are very often true and generally true. That even though children may wander away for a time, they may in the end come back. And Samson did. All of you, I'm sure, know the name Augustine. Great uh, 4th century theologian. uh, As... uh, G.K. Chesterton said he was the light in the Roman Empire. When the light of civilization was going out, he's the one who encapsulated Christian theology in a way that could be passed from one generation to the next. And who is the major theologian that long after his death is widely read through the medieval period, through the Dark Ages, when the light of Christianity was, was being extinguished throughout Europe. There were those who read Augustine and were drawn to God. Everybody knows about Augustine, probably the most uh, prolific writer, had the most profound influence on Christendom of any person ever. And yet, did you know, for the, for the first 30 years of his life, he was a prodigal? He grew up uh, in, a, in a believing home. His mother, Monica, who's, a, again, another one of those uncelebrated, unsung heroes, poured her life into that young man. He, he grew up in a little town of Tagaste, uh, uh, Africa, actually, it'd be Algeria today. It's a little town like Cuna. And uh, she poured her life into this brilliant young man. She knew that from the very beginning he had tremendous potential. Hungered for him to use those God-given gifts for the sake of the kingdom of God. Prayed over him, taught him the scriptures. His father apparently was not a believer, but she was. When Augustine was 17, he walked away from the Lord. He gave himself to what he calls the sewage of lust. Uh, His life from that time on was just uh, one failed romance and one lustful experience after another. Moved to Milan, which is like moving from Cuna to San Francisco, and engaged in uh, every sinful activity that was available at that time. Got himself mixed up in a cult called Manichaeanism. It's a Persian, weird, strange Persian cult. Abandoned his Christian faith, turned his back on his family. His mother came to Milan when she heard he was going to move to Rome because that frightened her even more. Rome was the most wicked city in the world at that time. Capital, of course, center of the Roman Empire. And a Roman Empire that was becoming more degraded every day. She went to see him off and begged him not to go. And uh, uh, to show how far Augustine had had, uh, descended into into deceit, uh, sent her off into a chapel to pray told her it was a cool place to go. And while he was there, he slipped aboard ship and he left for Rome. And when he got to Rome, he fell under the influence of a godly man by the name of Ambrose, preacher there in, in Rome. He's actually bishop of the church there. Augustine began to listen to his teaching and his heart was drawn out toward the Lord. And uh, uh, one day, he was sitting on a park bench and he was thinking about the emptiness of his life. He was contemplating suicide. And did not know where to go. And he heard some children nearby. They were playing a game. And they were chanting, Tolelege, Tolelege, in Latin. Uh, 
which he took to mean, take up and read, take up and read. And he went back to his apartment, and he uncovered the scroll of the book of Romans that his mother had given to him. And he enrolled the scroll to chapter 13 of Romans, and he read these words, Let us behave decently, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And as Augustine said, I did not need to read, to read further. There was no need to. And he fell upon his knees by that bench, and he embraced once more the Lord of his mother. And he became that great theologian with his enormous influence on, on the Western, in fact, on the whole world from that, that period on, you see. Interestingly enough, Monica died nine months later. Or, pardon me, nine days later. Her work was done. What was her work? Well, not to nag Augustine, not to provoke him. She had spent those years simply praying for him and living before him the godliest of lives. That's our call. That's our call. We look back at our failure and know we're forgiven. We look at the present and see that, that our call to fathering or mothering is simply to center ourselves on God and grow in grace and our understanding of who God is and let him change us increasingly into his, his likeness and then leave the results to him. And there's always hope. He, he has the most creative, innovative ways of touching hearts that are well beyond our, our reach. Let's pray. Father, a passage like this fills our hearts with light and with confidence. And the shadows of, of our doubt are swept away. We thank you for this good word, for this good reminder, the incredible wisdom that we, found, we find in the word of God that surpasses anything that we find in the world around us. Thank you for our forgiven state. We rest in that wonderful assurance that we are pure as the driven snow in your eyes. You do not hold our sins against us, that you are eternally on our team. And it would be our request this morning that by your power, by your grace, we would grow up to full maturity, that we would become everything that you have intended us to become. We pray for our children. We put them into your hands. They belong to you. You gave them to us. We give them back to you to do with them as you see fit. Thank you for the courage and the confidence that comes from that faith. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.